We're going to be looking at the first four verses in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, but I want to sort of recap a little bit of where we've been. Um, we're going to, again, like explore these first four. Um, but the first 48 verses in the Sermon on the Mount all come in Matthew chapter 5, and they're very important for us. So there's a handful of things that we need to do together this morning um, as we look to uh, as we look to move forward here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, first is we started in the Beatitudes. That's where Jesus starts in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing is uh, that we need to understand that God's favor comes first. It comes before right living. And Jesus gives us the Beatitudes here in order that we might, together as a people, understand and know uh, the fact that we have God's favor upon us first. The Beatitudes give us this picture. And this shows us that we must be new creatures first, that we must have a new identity in Jesus. And there are a handful of things that we need to keep in mind here when Jesus says, has these several statements here where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness sake. And all of these things are pointing to us being new creatures because, again, these are things that the world does not value. These are the things that the world looks at and thinks to itself, wow, that's really strange. Why would anybody aspire to, to, those, to those things? Uh, secondly, new creatures then, uh, as we see then in verses 13 through 16 in particular, are called to with a very specific task, and that's to be salt and light in, in our world. Salt has a purifying and preserving effect on the world around it, and therefore new creatures are called to exist in the world and do so uh, in such a way that reduces the effects of sin by living lives that are God-honoring and bring him glory by existing for others. Now, light illuminates the darkness, right? Light brings, uh, shows what's going on. It brings sin out of the shadows and exposes it to what it really is. New creatures are called to show the world that it's headed the wrong direction. New creatures are called to show the world that it's headed the wrong direction and to sort of arrest this decomposition that's happening in our world. And we do that by proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And then thirdly, where we ended last week, we looked at six statements that Jesus makes centered around having a greater righteousness of that of the scribes and Pharisees. We spend a significant amount of time there. And these indicate God's intent for kingdom citizens. We as kingdom citizens are showing the world what, it, what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And we're pulling back the curtain and we're bringing a whole new culture into this one here. A culture that's not interested in self, but that is interested in existing for others. A culture that is uh, where things are simple, but they're not easy, right? It's a simple statement to say that you exist for others, but it is a difficult thing to do. It's not easy. Your sinful flesh doesn't like that. It doesn't like to think about existing for others. We like to think about ourselves. It's sort of like... Um, a simple statement would be, I'm going to make dinner tonight, but it's a whole lot easier to go pick up a $5 box at, at Taco Bell. Um, overall, I know some of us, and some of our time in the Sermon on the Mount, most of us have heard a, a majority of this, but some of you only heard bits and pieces. So here's what Jesus is driving in the, the, the things that we've said time and time again throughout the course of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first thing, two things really. They have to do with identity and purpose. Your identity is not something you develop, but rather something that's given to you. 
So the free gift of salvation given to you in Christ Jesus is not something that is a one-time thing and then you go on doing what you're doing. Your identity is now found in Jesus. So think about like surgery, right? So when I was in high school, I was a sophomore in high school, and I, I had my wisdom teeth taken out, right? I couldn't go on eating steak after I had my wisdom teeth out. I had to eat jello and mushy stuff. That's what, that's what happens when, when there's a major operation that happens on you. You can't undergo a major operation and expect to continue on doing the things that you did before. You can't have your wisdom teeth out and eat steak. I, I mean, you can, but it's not going to go well. And when you trust Jesus to deal with your sin, this is a big-time operation. The old man is removed. It's taken out. It's, it's removed entirely from you. And the new man is replaced. You're replaced with a new man, a new nature, the way God originally intended now in Christ. So this is a complete transplant that takes place. It becomes your identity and it defines you. There's nothing else in this world that can define you in the way that being in Christ does. So that's the first statement then, right? Your identity is not something you develop, but rather something that's given to you. And secondly then, secondly, your purpose is not something you find, but rather something that's outlined for you. Your purpose is to show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like, which is the same as saying your purpose is to make disciples. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. It means to know God and to make him known, to exist for others, to see them grow in Christ's likeness. Last week we talked about the table. What does it look like to be, to sit around the table together as, as people? We need to move people from the enemy category to the neighbor category. And the, temp, the, the table represents dependence and intimacy. Dependence and intimacy that, that we cannot generate elsewhere. And that we're picturing a meal that we've been invited to, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I was talking about inviting others into your home. That's what we're, we're talking about. Our, our community group, we try to eat together regularly. We try to do this together regularly. Um, because um, it develops intimacy and dependence on one another. It's not a throwaway activity. It's not less than discussing a sermon. It's not a time waster because the leader doesn't want to prepare for a discussion time. What it is is developing intimacy and dependence on one another. And so the table then becomes integral to disciple-making. The table becomes integral to disciple-making because it's a place where those two things, intimacy and dependence, happen. You can't show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like if you live in isolation. It's plain and simple. Jesus understands this, and he communicates this effectively. So this is our purpose. This is our mission. Our purpose and our mission is to make disciples and to teach them all that uh, Jesus has commanded us. And this has to happen together. I was talking to a friend this week about Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. And he was telling me, this is the passage with the, the famous thing that we all like because we like to fish. And where Jesus says, I'll, I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. And I'll just read it for you. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Matthew 4, 18 through 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And they said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now we put that reference on the side of our boat or wherever, right? Because it's a nice thing to do. And, or we like a picture of a pristine lake 
uh, in Alaska with a fly fruit fisherman, and then we put, I'll make you fishers of men underneath that. But the reality is that that's not what the picture looks like at all. When Jesus' disciples, the men he called out of that life, would have heard him say that, they would have thought of fishing as as a brutal activity. You go out in one boat, maybe two, a bunch of sweaty, hairy guys pulling on nets, pulling a bunch of slimy fish up into a boat, probably falling in the water pretty regularly. This is what it looks like. It's, it's a mess. It's gross. It's not, it's not pristine fly fishing in Alaska. Um, and so what we need to understand is that this is a free-for-all, right? This is not a highly individualistic, peaceful activity. It's a free-for-all. We're trying to, these guys were trying to earn a living, Everything, everyone having to work together to somehow make it happen. So our purpose and our mission is to make disciples, and we see that in the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You don't get to pick and choose when you're on mission in, or when you're not. Now, your purpose is clear. You're showing the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. So that brings us then to our text this morning in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the six statements that Jesus makes at the end of Matthew chapter 5 are moving us, are moving us towards wholeness and telling us what greater righteousness looks like. And now Jesus is going to give us three things. He's going to give us three things beginning in Matthew chapter 6. We see giving in the first four verses, and then we're going to see a long, uh, a long uh, discussion of prayer in verses 5 through 15, and then he'll say a brief word about fasting. And these things would have been considered pillars, religious pillars in the Jewish life. And we're just going to consider the, the first then this morning in these first four verses. First, though, I think what we need to see is verse 1 is setting up all of this time together for us, these three things, the the giving, prayer, and fasting. Verse 1 is setting this up. He's giving, Jesus is giving us a warning. He's giving us a warning of what uh, what is coming. It sets up this discussion. What do Jesus' followers need to understand here? What they need to understand, looking at verse 1, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for, when, when, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What they need to see here is that there are incorrect motives for doing the things that he's going to talk about. There are incorrect motives for doing the things that he's going to talk about. Again, Jesus, like we've looked at in chapter 5, Jesus is concerned with an outside that matches the inside. Jesus is concerned with inward transformation that flows outward into external obedience. Doing something to be seen by another, which is what Jesus is addressing here, is an incorrect motive. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
So look at the second half of the verse then. For, then he says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I think this is a difficult phrase for us. This is a difficult phrase for us. You will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What do you mean by that, Jesus? What do you mean? Um, this is, again, a, a, C.S. Lewis sums this up really well in his book, the weight, of, the weight of Glory. He says simply this, and I think this is a principle that we all know and our lives are governed by, but I think something that is, is, is pretty important to get our minds around as we're looking at these texts. C.S. Lewis says this, the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto an activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So what does Lewis mean by that? What does Lewis mean by that? The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto activity for which they are given, but are the activity themselves in consummation. That's a lot of words. The reward is the act. The reward is the act. The reward isn't the approval or the applause of men, but the sheer ability to perform the act. It's by giving, by praying, by fasting, you're not hoping to receive an accolade but you're understanding that the accolade has already been given to you. God's favor is already on you. You've already received all things in Christ. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What he then calls you to do is that you don't need to add to what you've received. You've already received all things in Christ. The applause of men, it will come and go. The day they'll, the one day they'll be congratulating you, the next day they'll be slandering you. It makes no difference. All of these things have been provided for you and given to you in Christ. You do not need the approval and applause of men. By seeking the approval and applause of men, you will have no reward from your heavenly Father because it's a clear indication that your actions don't flow out of internal newness. It's just behavior modification. And friends, this is, this is hard. I would challenge you to camp out here and consider what Jesus is saying. Are your actions just modification to get people to think you as righteous? Or get to like you in a particular circumstance? Or are they flowing from genuine newness experienced in Christ? Here are a couple of examples. You, you give money to be, to a facil- for a facility to be built for a church or a Christian organization or a nonprofit. Do you expect your name on a plaque? You pray before your lunch at work. You expect others to ask you about it or have a conversation with you about it? You decide to fast. You expect others to ask you why your energy levels are down or why you didn't bring lunch today? This is just a, a small litmus test of the way that our heart goes. We want to be recognized for the things that we do. And Jesus, first of all, is going to talk about our giving. So what not to do? What, what are we to not to do? Look at verse 2 with me. It says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. When you give, notice Jesus is assuming that you're giving, right? That new creatures are giving part of what they have, what they've been given. 
that they, are, that they are sacrificially giving, that they're giving back a portion of what they've received. This is not if, when you, or not if you give, but when you give. And now Jesus says, when you give to the needy. And in a society, right, where Jesus was embedded, where there were no government programs, and where there were no, uh, nothing, nothing set up in the community for people who were poor and who fell in hard times. They had to be cared for by the religious community. And so this became a pillar of religious life, giving to the needy. A beggar or a needy person would become a quick place for everyone to see you make that deposit for the sake of appearances. And so therefore, it became sort of this ritualistic repertoire for the religious leaders, those people who wanted to be recognized in society as righteous. And Jesus goes so far as to say that those people are actually sounding a trumpet. This is probably hyperbolic, like they're probably not running around with a trumpet. But they're making it known to everyone and showing everyone in the world that they as people um, are doing something righteous. They're doing something religious. They would make sure people are watching They wouldn't do it when no one was around. They'd make sure that everyone was standing there looking at him. They would make sure that everyone saw just how righteous they were. And why did they do this? It was because they wanted to be praised by others. They wanted to hear, well done. They wanted to hear those things. And Jesus says, if that's the reward they're after, it's the reward they will have. The problem isn't that it's temporary. It's not lasting and it will leave the giver in empty. They'll just want more approval. And they want more applause. And it will never, ever be good enough. So Jesus then said, what, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do then, Jesus? Look at verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is the alternative then, right? This is the alternative. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Giving should be such a secretive act that someone as close, something as close as your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. It shouldn't be motivated by the applause of others. It shouldn't be why Jesus says this. It shouldn't even be motivated by self-approval. I did the right thing. And that feels good. Jesus says that's the wrong motivation. That is the wrong motivation. The act of generosity is not something that is intended to make us feel good, but to remind us to reflect upon the greatest good we've experienced in our lives. Again, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, if we believe that, if we believe what Romans 8, 32 says, if you believe that your identity and purpose are found in Jesus and has been given to you, if you believe that you've been freely given all things in Christ, if you believe that you are God's child despite your rebellion against him, if you believe that God graciously plucked you out of your sin, then the approval and applause of men will be of little consequence. Let your giving then be in secret. In the context of the local church, people give for a lot of reasons. People give for a lot of reasons. 
Oftentimes, it's because they want to vote on carpet color. Thankfully, we don't have carpet, and we don't even own this building, so whatever. Or about a staff decision or about a budgetary matter. And they think to themselves, I've given a lot to this church. I should have a louder voice. I should be, my say should, should carry some more weight here because I've given a lot. I've invested a lot. I've, taken a, I've, given, or I've given a lot to my alma mater. They should really name something after me. Or people know how little money we make, which is sort of the flip side of this. People know how little money we make. They should applaud us for the regularity in our giving because look at us. Look at the faith we have. We don't make very much money, but we're giving it all away. And Jesus says that none of these should ever enter our mind as his followers. Because that kind of thinking indicates a lack of internal newness and an understanding of reward. Each of the three things given here, giving that we're talking about this morning, prayer and fasting, each of these things will conclude with Jesus making this statement, and your, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what's the reward? What do we get out of this? A deeper understanding of who he is. A deeper understanding of regardless how your day goes, who sees or doesn't see what you do, who hears or doesn't hear what you say, you're still his child. His favor is still upon you. He has granted you favor. He has shown you grace. He has delivered you from sin, from Satan, and from the world. And all of that is finished. People see reward language and think, I've got to get a big house. I've got to live next to a lake in eternity or get that sweet new iPhone X or have a lot of gold or whatever you're into. But your father who sees in secret will reward you, not with things, but with more of him. Isaiah 42, 5 through 9 says this. This says, God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Behold, they spring forth, I tell you of them. Your reward is not glory. Your reward is not applause or approval. Your reward, it's your flesh that's demanding those things for yourself what is rightfully God, your reward is living into what God has made you to be, an object to bring him glory. So in conclusion then this morning, just a couple of questions. And I'm going to answer these for us. What has God made you? What has God made you? He created you to bring glory by reflecting what he is, who he is, back to him. That is what God has made you. You are a mirror. You're a mirror. 
God, the creator, the sustainer, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, merciful, gracious, loving, kind, patient, the list goes on and on, generous, made you with the intent of reflecting all those things. So when it comes to your giving, you must do so with a heart that doesn't want to claim the glory for yourself, but give it to God. How? By not seeking the approval of men, not even seeking a good feeling, but understanding rather that you are glorifying God by reflecting His generosity. That's the first question. What has God made you? He created you to bring Him glory by reflecting who He is back to Him. Second question is this. What has God done for you? What has God done for you? If you give expecting man's approval, expecting a bigger say in what an organization does, expecting a plaque, expecting any one of those things, or just a good feeling in general, then you haven't understood what God has done for you. And it's not that God doesn't demand something from us when we trust him. He demands our life. He demands everything. It's actually that it's all rightfully his anyway. That glory that by making us new creatures, we can now give to him. That glory belonged to him to start with. It wasn't ours. It didn't belong to us. And what does it mean to glorify God? This is a question that sometimes we ask ourselves. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to find nothing else of worth in this life. Not our money, not our families, not our jobs, not our titles, not our homes, not our cars or bank accounts or relationships or accolades or comfort or convenience. It means to see all of those things as good gifts that God has granted to us to point us back to who he is. small taste of eternity that he has provided for us in Christ. And so this is a question we've asked frequently, and one that I think drives this text home. Are we satisfied in Jesus? Are we satisfied in Christ? I've quoted this before. John Piper says in his book, Desiring God, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Because in doing so, we're setting aside the things of, of, this, of this world, of this life. Setting them aside and saying, these things have little consequence to me. The applause and approval of men have little consequence to me. They don't change my eternal trajectory. Seeking the approval or applause of others in our giving opens a window to our heart. It opens a window to a heart that is not satisfied in who God is and who he has made us. And what he has done for us. So the last question then in conclusion this morning is, so what? <laughs> so what? John Calvin in his Harmony of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he says this, John, uh, the theater of God is in the hidden corners. The theater of God is in the hidden corners. What he means by that is God fulfills his purposes in the minutia of life. God fulfills his purposes in the minutia of life. God carries out his plan in the understated. He does it in a time and time again throughout Scripture. The boy David, who would become Israel's greatest king, when Samuel shows up at Jesse's house to anoint the next king, 
He was left in the field. A group of fishermen, a tax collector, a religious fanatic, among other ordinary jobs, mostly uneducated, would walk with Jesus and then would become the stewards of his bride, the church, in the book of Acts. Jesus himself, born in a barn to poor parents, all while being caught up in a major Roman political procedure in the midst of one of the world's greatest empires, quietly broke in as a helpless baby. The hidden corners are the theater of God. Indeed. Therefore, therefore, where our text leads us this morning, therefore, give of your financial resources freely and sacrificially, no matter if you make $100,000 or $10,000. But do so in secret. Do so with the intent to receive, not, not to receive applause from men or to even generate a good feeling inside of you, but do so in secret because it is God who rewards you with more of Him. This is not a push for cash-only giving. This is not a push for you to shred your tax statement at the end of the year. That misses the point. The question that Jesus wants us to ask ourselves as he spoke to his disciples on the side of the mount, is this. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's very simple. Again, it's not easy, but it's simple. In the way that you give, are you seeking God's glory, or are you seeking your own? Let's pray.